Well, uh, if you haven't already turned there, please take your Bibles and join me in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts 18. Acts 18, we're going to look at the whole chapter this morning. Um, If you're using the blue ESV Bibles, you can uh, find that on page 927. The title of our sermon is Our Sovereign God, and the key words for our worshipers in training are afraid, sovereign, and help. Question, what place does God's power and His reign and rule and sovereignty have in your heart? How much comfort does God's extension of His sovereignty into the world through His caring providence, how much comfort does that give you in the midst of difficulties and problems that you face? How much does it matter for us as a church in our ministry here in Rinkin, Georgia? Well, according to Acts 18, it should matter a great deal to us. It should give great Comfort to our hearts. Today we find Paul in the city of Corinth, having left Athens at the end of Acts 17. Now, after we see him in Corinth here this morning, we'll also see him head back to Syria, to Syrian Antioch, his home base, his sending church. Um, The church that sent him out on his first missionary journey, which began in Acts 13, and then sent him out on his second missionary journey, which began in Acts 15, which will conclude this morning when he returns home. Yet we'll also see this morning that Paul, pretty much as soon as he returns home, he leaves again for a third missionary journey. And there are two primary um, themes that we will find in this chapter that I want to to highlight for you this morning. Um, uh, The first we'll see at the beginning of the passage. The second we'll see at the end. Uh, One regards the sovereignty of God. The other, the role of Christian community. But before I really give the outline, I want to read uh, this chapter. We're going to read the whole thing, all 28 verses. And then I will give a a bit more of an outline, and then we'll get to work. So look with me at Acts 18, beginning in verse 1. After this, or sorry, yeah, after this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, 
a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio, proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centuria, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, and he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, through whom, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. There are three parts to this sermon. The second part is sort of a bridge or transition between the two main parts. The the first part, in the first 17 verses, we see Paul's ministry in Corinth. and, And in it, we see the sovereignty of God set on full display. Second, and as I said, in somewhat of a transitional few verses, Luke brings us from Paul's ministry in Corinth to this man, Apollos. But in those verses, 18 to 22, um, Paul returns home to Antioch, and then he sets out again on his third missionary journey. And then third, in verses 23 through 28, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, whom Paul had met in Corinth and brought to Ephesus, they uh, demonstrate the necessity of Christian community in their help to Apollos. So we have 
Paul in Corinth, we have Paul returning home and then leaving again, and then we have Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos in, uh, in Ephesus in our third point. And so those are the, the main movements that this passage makes, and the two main ideas um, that we need to see here are really, and the main one would be God's sovereignty, but also God's sovereignty in providing a, a community for his people. So look with me in the first place at verses 1 to 17, where we see Paul ministering in Corinth. Luke opens this account in Acts 18 uh, of Paul's ministry in Corinth by introducing us to a man named Aquila. Aquila was a Jew, a native of Pontus, though most recently he had been living in Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had come to um, Corinth from Italy because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And so when Paul gets to Corinth, he meets this man, and they end up working together as tent makers since they had been of the same trade. And Aquila and Priscilla even let Paul stay with them. And as we'll see by the end of Acts 18, this is a particularly providential meeting. But at the open here, what we need to see is that during the week, Paul was building tents, with Aquila, and then on the Sabbath day, he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the Greeks. And verse 5 tells us that Silas and Timothy had finally made it over from Berea in Macedonia. You remember that they, Paul had been driven from Thess- Thessalonica to Berea to Athens, and so when he left Berea, uh, he went by himself. Paul, uh, Silas and Timothy had been left behind, and he said, to the guys who took him to Athens, hey, bring them as quickly as you can. And so finally, they've linked up again, and Paul, when they arrive, they find him consumed with ministry, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And what happens here in Corinth is rather similar to what happened in Acts 13 at Pisidian Antioch, though it seems Paul's agitation with it, at least, is to an even greater degree. Paul pronounces, uh, like he did before, he pronounces a judgment of sorts upon the unbelieving Jews, and he says that he's taking his message to the Gentiles. You can, you can go back, if you want, and look at that interaction that he had at the end of Acts 13 to see some similarities there. Um, so he leaves the synagogue, and he walks next door to... Uh, the house of this man Justice, according to verse 7. And apparently, we would assume that while most of the Jews had resisted and objected to his message, uh, there was one Jew in particular who did not resist, who did not object to the message of Paul, and that was Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. said he believed in the Lord, he and his entire household. Now, Luke doesn't state it here, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.14 that Paul actually baptized Crispus, though he was only one of a few that Paul actually baptized in Corinth. And Luke goes on in the rest of verse 8 to tell us that there were many Corinthians at that point. Even uh, we would, uh, again, these are Gentile Corinthians believing at this point, uh, but they were believing and being baptized Though, as I said, most of them not baptized by Paul, likely Silas, Timothy, and perhaps uh, whoever else was was with them. So that's sort of 
the, the initial phase of his ministry in Corinth. And then we get this very interesting note in verses 9 through 11. And it, if you're just reading along, it might seem to, to come out of nowhere. Because it seems, if you read you know, those three verses, um, where the Lord comes to Paul in a vision in the night, and he says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. It seems that Paul was struggling. There were many Corinthians coming to faith, but, but I think Paul knew where this was heading. In some ways, in his mind, right? This wasn't his first rodeo. He'd been run out of pretty much every city that he had been in since Pisidian Antioch. Go back to Acts 13 and look at the, the first time he ever goes to a place. Almost inevitably, eventually, they want to stone him, or they do stone him, or they ask him to leave, or he leaves. Some folks are being converted here, but there are still those who oppose him. And so, before things get bad, it seems that Paul is ready to bolt. But the Lord says, don't be afraid. I am with you. Continue speaking. No harm will come to you, Paul, for I have many in this city who are my people. In Paul's moment of need, God encourages him. He encourages him not to be afraid, not to be silent. Paul. Paul. Paul afraid? Oh dear, trembling saint who struggles with fear, do you find yourself hardened? to share such company as that of the Apostle Paul who needed a word of, of, of encouragement from the Lord who was struggling with fear? Paul, the great missionary, the great apostle, the great evangelist, the great church planner was afraid and needed Jesus to come to his aid. And Jesus comes. Consider the content of this message with me for a moment. First, he gives a twofold command. He says, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking. So, two things don't be afraid and keep talking. And then he gives a twofold reason that maps onto the command. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I am with you and no one will harm you. Keep talking, Paul. Keep speaking. Keep preaching. Why? Because I have many people in this city. There are many people in this city who are mine, the Lord says. And I want to look at each of these in turn. These commands and these reasons. First, the command. He says, don't be afraid because I'm with you. No one will harm you. He doesn't merely say, Paul, don't worry. No one's going to hurt you. He says that Paul should not fear because he was with Paul. The Lord does not provide protection to his man here at some great distance. Of course, he could do so. 
He could have said, I'm the sovereign Lord, and I've decreed it. No one will harm you. What he says, he says, Paul, I'm going to come up close and personal with you right now. No one is going to harm you because I am with you. Do not be scared. No one can hurt you. I am here. I will not allow it. But he also says, not only don't be afraid, he says, but don't be silent. And the reason that Paul is to be kept from harm is because he needs to be able to keep speaking because there are people in the city who belong to the Lord. Now, Paul didn't know who they were. The people themselves didn't know who they were. But God knew exactly who they were. And he was committed to bringing every last one of them to himself. And so he says to Paul, I have many people here. So I'm going to keep you safe. You still have work to do. So press on. And so what is the result of this word from the Lord to Paul? Paul stays an extra 18 months teaching the Word of God among the Corinthians. And so, you've got the first part of his ministry in Corinth. You've got this transitional moment where whatever fear or, or discouragement he was experiencing, the Lord bolsters him. He stays an extra 18 months. But then you get these verses in 12-17 through 17 that perhaps, upon first reading, Similar to God's admonition, his encouragement to Paul, maybe 12 through 17 just seemed confusing. They did to me at first, honestly. I read it and I thought, what is this? Maybe it's an interesting, if unrelated, interlude. What? Luke, you've got limited space, brother. Why are you including this passage? Well, I, I think it's actually really important to what's happening here in Corinth, and it makes the point explicit about God's promise. Here's what I mean. At some point during Paul's stay, a man named Gallio became proconsul of Achaia, which was the wider region in which the city of Corinth was located. And so, seizing upon the opportunity, it seems, of a new Roman ruler, some Jews, it says, likely he's just he's simply using that phrase to mean the Jewish leaders, they seize upon this opportunity and they made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Now, if you're reading, you, you look at verse 12, they made an attack on Paul, and immediately you think, what happened to verse 10? No one will attack you to harm you. That is exactly what they're doing. They attacked Paul. They made an attack on Paul in order to harm him. So, were the Lord's words ringing in Paul's ears while he's being carried before the magistrates? No one will attack me. But isn't that exactly what they're doing, Lord? And yet, we see God's word once more prove to be irrevocably true. They bring Paul before the tribunal. They accuse him of trying to persuade people to worship God contrary to law. This this really old and tied and triered accusation that they, they try every place he goes. And yet, what does the, the proconsul say? Gallio, he says, this is no crime. See to it yourselves. And he drives them out. 
Now, it's clear that there's something of the hand of God to be seen in this. Because what happens immediately after Gallio drives them out? They seize upon Sosthenes, the new ruler of the synagogue, after Crispus had become a Christian, and they beat him right there in court. But Gallio, Luke tells us, paid no attention to this. Hadn't he just finished saying that if Paul had committed some wrongdoing, if he had committed some vicious crime, he would be happy to hear their case? And yet, immediately after those words leave his mouth, the Jews viciously beat a man right in front of him. And he does nothing. And so it's not as though Gallio is a particularly righteous man, a man particularly interested in justice, that he just knew and he loved righteousness and holiness and and the right thing being done. And he says, no, by principle, this man, Paul, needs to go free. He doesn't seem to care. What happened is that God stayed true to His Word and He prevented harm to come to Paul in Corinth despite the unrighteousness of Gallio who would let the Jews beat a man right in front of him. Now, I want to come back to this and draw some lessons from all of it at the end, but I want to press on <clears throat> to, to the bridge in our second point, verses 18 to 23. Um, these verses, as I said, they mostly serve as a transition between Paul's uh, second and third missionary journeys. He leaves Corinth um, sometime after his arrest and, um, and release, and he sets sail for his sending church in Syrian Antioch. Luke mentions that Priscilla and Aquila go with him. They make a stop in Century, and he cuts his hair due to a vow that he made to someone, somewhere, about something. And then they head over to Ephesus. And his stay there in Ephesus was brief. He reasoned in the synagogue, he made some friends, and he takes leave of them, promising to return if God would will it, leaving Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus. And again, we'll see in short order just how significant that is. And in verses 22 and 23, he lands in Caesarea. He says, uh, Luke writes that he heads up to the church, meaning the church in Jerusalem, heads up like elevationally up the mountain. He heads to Jerusalem, and then he heads down to the church in Antioch, spends some time there. We're not told how much, and then he heads out again, back through those original uh, cities, towns to, to in Galatia and Phrygia, and he says he strengthened all the disciples. And we'll see next week that he ends up coming back to Ephesus and beyond. But um, this is where we leave Paul momentarily. Paul's set out again, and um, until we, we get back to him next week, Luke shifts his focus to what's going on in Ephesus. And so that's just our very second point, which is really just a transition to our, our third in verses 24 through 28. Uh, look with me where we see the, the blessing and the necessity of Christian community. Um, we're introduced here to a man named Apollos. 
And he benefits from the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila. And there are three components to these verses here that I want you to observe with me. First, consider the quality of the man, Apollos, who had come to Ephesus, we're told in verses 23 through 25. Luke tells us that he's from Alexandria in Egypt and is said to be an eloquent man. He's competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And as a precursor to our passage next week in chapter 19, Luke tells us that though Apollos was eloquent, though he was trained and competent in the Scriptures, and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, his knowledge was still, at this time, quite incomplete. He knew only of the baptism of John. Nevertheless, he spoke boldly in the synagogue. And upon hearing his message, his true but lacking message, Priscilla and Aquila bring him aside, and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. And so now we've come to the point that I've been alluding to regarding Paul's relationship with Aquila. Do not miss the central place that God wants you to have for the Christian community in your life. Let me show you what I mean. We don't want to miss the central place that God has for the Christian community in our lives. It seems clear that at some point after Paul left Ephesus is when Apollos arrived. And remember, Paul's stay in Ephesus was extremely brief. You could even be uh, you. Rather, you wouldn't be faulted for saying that there really wasn't much of a ministry in Ephesus to speak of at the time by the Apostle Paul. There wasn't really any fruit there. He reasoned some with the synagogue, and then he left. We're not told that anyone believed, that anyone joined him or followed him, that there, there was very little fruit. So he left. Right? This is in contrast to other places. Even Antioch. Iconium, Lystra, Thessalonica, and Corinth, all these places, Athens, that had run him out or had dismissed him, we're still told that in those towns, people believed. There was fruit, but nothing really happens in Ephesus. But he does leave Priscilla and Aquila there. And that made all the difference. Through these seasoned saints, Paul, in a manner of speaking, teaches and further equips this young man, Apollos. Paul through Aquila and Priscilla to Apollos. Consider this flow of events. Paul's dejected, so he leaves Athens. He comes to Corinth. He wants to leave quickly, but the Lord encourages him and he stays longer. But thankfully, before he left, he had met Aquila. He had formed such a friendship with this pair that they let him stay in their home and they left Corinth with him heading for Syria. But then for some reason, he leaves them in Ephesus. And so even after he's gone, even after what you would call an unfruitful time in Ephesus, he, his teaching presence, as it were, remains. And it serves as a blessing to Apollos, who then in turn goes to the very place that Paul had left calling it quits in Corinth. Apollos helped the believers there. Look what Luke writes in verses 27 and 28. 
He says, And when he wished, Apollos, to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Right? At some point, Apollos desired to leave Ephesus to head over to Achaia, the city of Corinth, according to verse 19, or chapter 19 and verse 1. And there he became a great help to those who through grace had believed through Paul and his ministry. And he's powerfully refuting the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now, I want to, I'm going to cheat a little bit here, and I want to make this point a bit further by looking sort of ahead, foreshadowing chapter 19. Because not only does Apollos provide help and support to Paul's ministry that he had left in Corinth, but when Paul comes back next week, we'll see, to Ephesus, he provides support to what had been Apollos' ministry before leaving for Achaia. Luke tells us that Apollos had been a teacher in Ephesus, but he only knew of John's baptism. Well, whom does Paul find when he returns to Ephesus? Well, he finds disciples. He hadn't made any disciples when he was at Ephesus, according to Luke in chapter 18. But there are disciples there in verse in chapter 19, but disciples who only know about John's baptism. And so Paul comes behind Apollos and provides greater clarity and truth to his ministry that he had left behind while he was in Ephesus. So Apollos is helping, Paul is helping Apollos, Apollos is helping Paul, Paul is helping Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila are ministering to them both. So the question, do we have any Lone Rangers here today? Anybody who wants to go it alone? Obviously, you're here in church this morning, so maybe not. Hopefully not. But maybe you struggle a bit with the concept of the church. Or maybe you have a friend or family member who struggles with the concept of the church. And perhaps a passage like Acts 18 can be helpful to you or to them. Do you realize the crucial role that fellow Christians should play in your life? Paul needed help. Apollos needed help. The saints in Corinth needed help. The saints in Ephesus needed help. And so we see them helping each other while they're together. And we see the bigger picture of the the church, Big C, working together to provide that help. Maybe you're not Paul or Apollos. None of us are. But are you Priscilla or Aquila? Are you a seasoned saint that can pour into younger ones? Can you provide friendship like they did to Paul? Can you provide instruction like they did to Apollos? Well, let's sort of begin landing the plane here. Make some concluding observations. Draw some lessons from this. And and again, overall, the the, the point to walk away with here is, is the how Luke sets the sovereignty of God on full display in this passage. Was it any accident that Paul and Aquila made it to Corinth at the same time? Man, this man Aquila from Pontus, 
who was living in Italy, who ends up in Corinth at the same time that Paul does, who just happened to be a tent maker, the same profession as Paul. They just happened to to be in the same place at the same time doing the same thing so they could form a friendship that such a friendship that Aquila would bring his wife with him to leave again where they were living for another place. What about this? What what does the Lord say to Paul in verses 9 through 11? He says, I have many people in this city. There are many people in this city who are mine. God had chosen for himself people in Corinth, and Paul needed to keep working. He needed to go get them. What about us? How many people does God have in this city? How many people are in Rankin who belong to Jesus? They just don't know it yet. You know, Jesus hasn't visited any of us through a vision of the night to tell us that there are many people in Rankin that belong to him. But he has told us in Matthew 28 that he is with his church to the end of the age as we engage in the process of making disciples of all nations. He would be with us. He is with us. And he has his sheep that belong to his fold that are here, there, and everywhere. And so, Redeemer Baptist Church, let's go get them full of confidence in the blessing of the Lord and the presence of the Lord. Now, what about this man Sosthenes? Now, I know what you're thinking. How on earth does that have anything to do with what you're talking about? But I think Sosthenes, perhaps, is the most striking example of the sovereignty of God. Was it any accident that things went with him as they did? Of course not. Now remember... What happened? What, who was Sosthenes? Well, Sosthenes seems to be the guy who followed Crispus as the ruler of the synagogue. He then led a united attack against Paul, trying to get him arrested or killed or beaten or run out or whatever. But then that fails, and so his posse turns on him, and they beat him, and the proconsul says, Sorry, dog. I can't help you. Sosthenes' plan was foiled. Failed utterly. Now Luke doesn't tell us anything else about Sosthenes. But have you read 1 Corinthians 1-1 lately? 1 Corinthians 1-1. Paul writes, By the will of God, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. It's possible it's a different Sosthenes. Some would argue that it is. 
But wouldn't it seem so odd for Paul's first letter to the Corinthians to reference a man named Sosthenes if he's not talking about the one who had led the conspiracy against him and been publicly beaten and humiliated? Could this be the same Sosthenes who had replaced Crispus as ruler of the synagogue, who had led this attack against Paul, who when it failed by the sovereign hand of God, he was humiliated and viciously beaten by his cohort in front of the tribunal? Sure it could be. Think about it. Acts 18.18, Paul stayed many days longer after the mistrial. Could it be during that time that Sosthenes healed of his emotional and physical wounds and became a disciple of the Lord and went with Paul and became a traveling companion with him? Luke doesn't tell us. But Paul seems to want us to know. And here's the point of it all. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. He has a people all over the world. Some of them in the most unlikely of places. Like, say, being the ruler of a Jewish synagogue. In this passage, perhaps, two rulers of the synagogue in Corinth are converted. And so the Lord, with His people all over, is calling us, His church, to work together with each other and with other churches to plant churches, to strengthen churches. And so I have a proposal for you. In your mind, project yourself, project us as a church out 10, 15, 20, 25 years from now. Or, or more if you want. Ask yourself, how many churches, how many Reformed churches, how many Reformed Baptist churches might exist in Effingham County? How many Reformed Baptist churches might exist in the surrounding counties? How many disciples might exist in this area that need to be strengthened and encouraged? How many churches? One church? Five churches? Ten? Twenty? I don't have a specific number in mind. But I am praying for exponential growth of witness in the greater Savannah area and that God would do that in large part or some part through us. And I'm asking you to join me in praying to that end. We have the same sovereign Lord that Paul does. We are offered the same comfort and presence of the Lord Jesus that he was. And so we can engage in a relentless ministry, the same relentless ministry as Paul. Paul was discouraged in Acts 18, but he didn't quit. He went home, he was refreshed, and he went back out. And as we'll see when he gets to Ephesus... Next week, he engages in a lengthy ministry there. And we can do all of this. Trust in the sovereign God. Work together as God's people. Take comfort from our God. Engage in a ministry so that others might come to know the surpassing worth of that God.
I don't always pray at the end of a sermon, but I want to do that now, asking for that, and then we'll come to the table. Father, would you grant, according to wisdom, this request that you would multiply your your witness here in our county, in our town, in our area. Not for the glory of Redeemer Baptist Church, but for the glory of Christ, the Sovereign King. Lord Jesus, there are people all around who belong to you. We don't know who they are, but you do. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bring us into interaction with them. Help us to engage them, to share your message with them that you have died and you have been raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. I pray that you would bring them into your kingdom. Lord, we love you. Jesus, it's in your name that I pray. Amen.